This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. On Thursday, Netflix will begin streaming a new political drama called The Diplomat, starring Carrie Russell and Rufus Sewell. The show's creator was a writer on Homeland and the West Wing. Our producer, Sam Brigger, spoke to Carrie Russell about The Diplomat and her career. Here's Sam. In The Diplomat, Carrie Russell stars as Kate Weiler, a career foreign service officer with an excellent reputation for handling international crises, often behind the scenes. Her husband, Hal, played by Rufus Sewell, is also a diplomat and former ambassador whose heroic and sometimes rash behavior has been praised in certain halls of Washington and cursed in others. Kate is preparing to go to Afghanistan when an attack on a British aircraft off the coast of Iran derails those plans. The White House calls her into the Oval Office. Here's Russell as Kate Weiler speaking to the president, played by Michael McKeon, and his chief of staff, Billy, played by Nana Mensa. We don't have anyone in London right now. Mm-hmm. A bad time not to have anyone in London. Right. 25 of their sailors get killed because Iran wants to send me a message. We don't know it was Iran. Whoever it was, we need someone substantial to be the ambassador in London. He'll be great. He's a great choice. I'm sorry. Hal, and you didn't have to ask me. We've worked in different countries before. We're not talking about Hal. You're experienced. You'd signal we're taking this extremely seriously. You'd be at every funeral, every memorial. Sorry, I'm going to Kabul. We'll take care of that. They'll love Hal in London. He's good at all that. It's not going to be Hal. Why not? Because he called the Secretary of State a war criminal. I promised I wouldn't send him anywhere ever again. I realize London has a ceremonial component to it, and you were ready to do more substantive work in Kabul. I'm hoping to save a shred of what we spent 2,400 American lives building. It feels substantive. Billy. I'm just saying it's hard to imagine. She can't imagine it. The president is asking you to serve as ambassador to the United Kingdom. We have a plane waiting. We'd like you to get on it. It is an honor and a privilege. That's more like it. Carrie Russell has played two iconic roles in television as the lead on the show Felicity, as a young college woman in New York, and Elizabeth Jennings, a Soviet spy in the 80s living undercover in the United States in the critically acclaimed show The Americans. She received three Emmy nominations for that role. She got her start on television as a teenager on the all-new Mickey Mouse Club with a cast that also included Britney Spears, Ryan Gosling, Christina Aguilera, and Justin Timberlake. Russell also starred in the 2007 movie Waitress, has appeared in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Mission Impossible 3, and Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Her most recent movie is the comedy horror film Cocaine Bear. Carrie Russell, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, I just wanted to ask you first how you were pitched the show The Diplomat and the character Kate Weiler. Deborah Kahn who wrote it, sent me the script. It came through the the normal channels. It was actually, it was the holidays, it was Christmas time, and it just so happened that I had uh, three sets of grandparents downstairs in my house, <laughs> yeah. and I was cooking for them all. It was chaotic and fun and amazing. And um, 
you know, I was clearly not shopping around for a new television show to join. Um, I read this and I just, it has this combination of, or Deborah's writing does, I suppose, of this political fun intrigue and almost in the world of kind of war journalism and and those kind of stories that, that interest me. And this world of civil servants and um, the State Department and the people who do those jobs that, you know, we just don't know that much about. Uh, and Deborah, she writes about the minutia of life, <laughs> you know. So it's someone going to meet the president, but then realizing there's yogurt uh, on my pants. <laughs> and you're like, I got to get this yogurt. Like, how am I going to get this off? You know, and um, it's just great writing. And I, I couldn't say no. So the show's creators called your character Itchy. What does that mean to you? <laughs> That's very funny. Um, <laughs> she's a very good organizer, and she's very good at um, getting all the facts right and getting people where they need to be um, behind the scenes. And then I think if you ask her to wear something other than her one black suit that she really feels good in and smart in and tough in... And you ask her to wear a dress, it's going to show her sweat and she's itchy and um, she doesn't like when people look at her. So that's really fun. Yeah, she's much more comfortable behind the scenes, right? That's what this show is sort of about, you know, plucking her from the background as like number two and bringing her to the front in a very visible post, which um, London would be for an ambassador. Um, so as you as you said earlier... The job of the American ambassador to the UK has a lot of ceremonial aspects to it, and and you know you said that the job is uh, often a reward to like a big political donor or bundler, and like Kate's supposed to attend all these parties and teas. She's supposed to wear dresses and do photo shoots, and she she really bristles against that. Like she just wants to do the diplomacy, and I was just wondering if that's something that you relate to as an actor? Like, do you enjoy movie openings and galas or would you just prefer to do the work? Going to an award show is such a fun idea. (laughs) (laughs) Going is zero fun. It's so fun to think about wearing a fancy dress. It is so fun. Everything is so pretty. Oh my gosh. And the colors and getting your hair and makeup done and, and, and imagining that you'll look so much better than you really do when you do school <laughs> drop off. But the truth and the reality of getting your hair and makeup done, it, you still look sort of weird. You're, you're instantly starting to sweat. Um, putting on a dress, going, oh, this doesn't look the way I thought it would. Oh, wow, standing in front of hundreds of photographers while they take your picture and you're like, oh, my God, I'm doing the wrong face. I'm not standing right. Oh, they're, they're going to see my sweat. Can they see through this dress? Can they see my nipples? <laughs> like what, you know, it's all, that is never fun. <laughs> like all you want to do is do like five minutes of one of those things and then go leave and get a burger and have a beer. But that's not what you get to do. It's like an eight-hour ordeal. So, yes, I fully, um, when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. I mean, just you're just in a tailspin of uncomfort. <laughs> right. Um, 
Let's talk about your last TV show, The Americans. The, the, the show ran for six seasons on FX. It ended in 2018. It was critically acclaimed. The show won two Peabody's. And you were highly praised for your performance, and you were nominated for three Emmys. So for people who don't know the show, uh, I guess there are some people out there. The show takes place in the 80s during the Reagan administration, and you play Elizabeth Jennings, a Soviet spy posing as an American. You're in a KGB-arranged marriage to another spy played by Matthew Reese. And when the show starts, you've been living in the United States for 15 years, you have two American-born kids, which was initially just like part of your disguise. And you've thought of your relationship to your husband as more of a work relationship rather than a romantic one. Although at this point, you're starting to have real feelings for him. So could you just tell us how this role came to you? Uh, you know, it's funny. John Landgraf, who runs FX, really advocated for me to do this part. And I kept I read it and I was like, why in the world would, would they want me to play this cold, calculating spy, Russian spy? Because literally when I was reading it, I was thinking of like, um, you know, in, that, in, in Rocky, like when, they, when he has to fight the Russian fighter and he has that amazing Russian wife. Mm-hmm. I think it's Bridget yeah, Nielsen yeah, or something, is. right? Am no, I making that great. up? That's, that's who I was picturing. <laughs> yeah. I... I <laughs> am l- frazzled and nervous and like girl next door. So I was like, what? Why does he want me? But that was sort of the genius of him is realizing that you need somebody who does look sort of ordinary and that people have this sort of whatever feeling for so that I could be this crazy killer and, you know, sneaky spy. Well, I'd like to play a scene from the show. Uh, this is this is from season three. So y- your daughter Paige is is a teenager at this point, and um, well, I guess she was a teenager all along, but she's getting a little older. And your handlers, the KGB, want to recruit her for the cause. And Philip is strongly against this; like he wants Paige to have a normal American life. Your character Elizabeth is more resigned to the idea, and this is a real rift in the marriage at this point. Um, but Paige has been suspicious of your behavior for a while, and in this scene, she confronts you both, and you decided to tell her the truth. And Paige here is played by Holly Taylor. Paige, your father and I, we, we were born in a different country. What? Where? The Soviet Union. We came here before you were born. I... I don't understand. We're here to help our people. Most of what you hear about the Soviet Union isn't true. Everything that we've told you about being activists, about wanting to make the world a better place. So, you're... We work for our country. Getting information. Information that they couldn't get in other ways. You're... spies? 
We serve our country, but we also serve the cause of peace around the world. We fight for people who can't fight for themselves. Stop. Paige. We wanted to tell you this for such a long time. But you didn't. No. No, you're right. We didn't. So that's a scene from the Americans. Like, that's a <laughs> real turning point in the show. Um, and it, it's ironic, you know, you finally telling your daughter the truth about their lives, like, just lays bare all the dishonesty that they've been living with. And, like, that their yeah. the family is, like, a, based on a foundation of lies. It's, um, you know, Joe and Joel, the writers of the show, um, uh, they at one point had, had spoken to like a, a psychologist about children um, and how this might affect them. And one of the things I thought was so interesting was they they were saying one of the things that traumatizes a child more than anything is a huge lie because you've they can't even trust their own memories because they, they go back and they're like, but that none of that was real because you weren't doing that. So I have all these memories that you were working in a travel agency or whatever we were doing. And, you know, that's not even real anymore and how damaging that is. Well, it's interesting because, like, parents, like, whether they're Soviet spies or not, like, they can <laughs> they conceal things from your kids, like, all the time, like, for all sorts of reasons, like, to maintain their innocence, like, to simplify things, and just to keep the parents' lives private. And, you know, that even continues and as the as the kids age. And one of the things I found really fascinating with your relationship with Paige is that, like, even when Elizabeth reveals that she's a spy, like she still can't tell Paige about all the stuff she does, like all the, <laughs> the honey traps and the murders, yeah, like, because yeah. she, she doesn't want Paige to think she's a monster. No, I know. It's, it's so, it's such a great idea for a show because you have these people, these children looking up to you and they're judging you and, it's such, it's such an interesting – it's not just, you know, one spy telling the story in a movie. You're, you're, you're living with them and you're living with their choices and feeling all these other little satellite parts of their lives. And um, that's what's so fun about this era of TV that who knows, maybe we're moving out of now. Yeah, as you said, like she's not a sympathetic character. She's like a cold-hearted killer. She's she's not a terribly warm mother. She's like literally a, an enemy of the country. Um, and you know, like Matthew Reese's character, Philip is 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 sort of easier to like. Like he he's thinking of defecting to the U.S. He's a little more of a conventional parent to the kids. But you know, watching the show, like the audience is definitely rooting for Elizabeth. Like, can you talk about how you humanized the role? The main thing is that Elizabeth was doing what she was supposed to do, and, and she wanted to do it well. Like, that is what she believed in. Um, and if, from her perspective, you know, she's the better soldier. It right. was, in a way, Philip. He's the slacker. <laughs> that character. He, he was, yeah, he was the one putting them in danger with his side, you know, dalliances and... Um, and 
kind of over emotion, you know, about everything that you could, one could argue was putting the children in danger because they could have been caught. But hmm, how did I humanize her? I just believed what she believed, you know, and to do, she was doing what she was supposed to do and she was doing it well. Watching the show last week, I was just thinking about how much fun it must have been uh, for an actor because like there's so much acting in it. Like like first you're acting as a Russian spy who's pretending to be a, an all-American mom. And then you have all these side missions where you're disguised as other characters. You're seducing people. You're killing people. Like it just must have been really fun to go in and, and have all the stuff to work with. It was so fun. I mean, it's, a, it's an actor's dream. First of all, there's this incredible cheat of, and I feel like since the Americans, now there's a lot of things I feel like these days where people get all wigged up and do things. Yeah, but, yeah you wear you a know, lot of wigs. You probably wear like 100 <laughs> wigs during this, <laughs> so, the show. So many wigs and stupid mustaches and things. Um, but, you know, it's this incredible shorthand cheat to feeling like someone else, getting to wear that wig or crazy makeup. You know, I, I did this uh, job with Gary Oldman and um, Gary said, you know, I've been watching it and um, I call David Bowie and we FaceTime afterwards <laughs> and we talk about the show. I was like, oh my gosh. That'd be a good podcast. So, <laughs> so cool. Totally. So anyway, he said, you know, that one episode where you're wearing this one wig, it, I think it was this, um, it was early on, I'm, I'm wearing some super short crazy wig and they kind of gave me weird skin and and he said you know people don't understand that when you do that it helps you so much like you look like a completely different person I said I know it's true and it was really um it, it's such a fun cheat to seeing yourself as this other person I just rem- was reminded of do you ever see that Bugs Bunny cartoon where it's but I think it's Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd yes. and this wig van has a crash and all the wigs float in the air and then the wigs keep landing on their heads and they change characters. <laughs> no, that's, that's, like that's kind exactly of like the Americans, yeah. It was so, it was so stupid and so fun. You know, we'd be like midnight and Matthew would come in to the trailer with some crazy mustache and we would just laugh our heads off. It was, it was so fun. So, you know, putting all the spy stuff aside, like the the show's really about like a marriage and a family and like about the trust between partners, like how how people change during a marriage and how that the like either the relationship adapts or the it breaks apart. Absolutely. I mean, that to me was the show. I mean, yes, I know the the political intrigue of it all um and the historic aspect of it, but to me it was just this impossible, painful marriage and trying to stick it out or not. And that's every marriage or any relationship, long-term relationship. It's, they're so hard. I mean, there might be a couple people who it's easy and great, but um, it's hard. And um, I thought that is, was truly what the show was so great at, you know, the conceit that we were working and living in this spy world allowed the story to literally for the job, he had to sleep with someone else or multiple people. (laughs) You know what I mean? So you got to play out those real 
fears and feelings of long-term relationships um, in that way. And it was just, it was such a smart idea to explore and unravel a relationship. That's Kerry Russell speaking with Fresh Air's Sam Brigger. Her new Netflix series, The Diplomat, starts streaming Thursday. We'll hear more of their interview after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the official Hacks podcast from Max. Join the creators and showrunners of Hacks as they discuss each episode and speak with the cast and crew about the making of the series. Listen to the official Hacks podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Be My Guest with Ina Garten, a podcast from Food Network. Intimate and captivating conversations with new and old friends. Jennifer Garner, Frank Bruni, Emily Mortimer, and more. Listen to Be My Guest wherever you get your podcasts. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Hi, this is Molly C.V. Nesper, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Seth Kelly, also a producer at Fresh Air. If you like the Fresh Air podcast, we think there's a pretty good chance that you'll also like the Fresh Air newsletter. It's a weekly newsletter written by us, the people who help make the show. You'll get all the week's interviews and reviews in one place. Plus, staff recommendations, interviews from the archive, bonus audio, and what's coming up on the show. Imagine an email you enjoy getting. To subscribe, go to whyy.org slash Fresh Air. Let's get back to the interview Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger recorded with actor Carrie Russell. She stars in the new political drama The Diplomat, which begins streaming this Thursday on Netflix. Russell plays Kate Weiler, a career diplomat tapped by the White House to serve as the U.S. ambassador to the U.K. The show's creator, Deborah Kahn, was a writer on Homeland and The West Wing. Carrie Russell got her start on TV as a teen on the all-new Mickey Mouse Club. She became famous as the lead on the TV show Felicity. She received three Emmy nominations for her role in the series The Americans as a Soviet spy in the 80s, living in the U.S., pretending to be an American. During the filming of The Americans, you became like a real-life romantic partner with Matthew Rees, and you have a child together. And I'm sure there's a lot of advantages of acting opposite someone who you're in a relationship with. Like, you you probably have a lot of trust for each other. But, like, are there any disadvantages? A a, a thousand. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Let me put it this way. It's either amazingly helpful or it's incredibly, impossibly unhelpful. <laughs> um, you know, like anyone, there are certain days when something bad has happened or you haven't been able to finish a fight where you know someone has really done something not cool and you have to get it out and then you have to go shoot this scene where you are just like, you know, um, or... You know, we all have these different personas we have at work for whatever reason, for protection, for ease, for whatever. And your partner is watching you walk through every moment of your day. And it is, it's it's interesting. Um, You know, luckily, we, for the most part, get along. And, um, you know, we got to fall in love on this show, like doing these ridiculous spy things. And it was sexy and fun. And, um, but... Yes, it's it can be problematic too. I, I remember 
Matthew directed a few episodes as well. And in one episode, I was really pregnant and um, <laughs> he was trying to get me to do something. I don't even know what it was. But I had a huge monologue. I think I was just poor Holly Taylor, just yelling at Holly Taylor, our sweet little teenager, just this massive monologue of vitriol towards her. And he came up to give me something, some note. And I was just like, stop, stop. No, I'm doing what I can do. Just back away. He's like, got it, got it. Backing away. (laughs) There's a scene I want to ask you about, and I'd, I'd play it for people to listen to, but there's no dialogue in it. So um, so this is in season three. And earlier in the season, you had a run-in with the FBI in the street and you beat them up and got away. <laughs> but you, you sustain like a bad jaw injury and you can't get treatment because the feds have put out like an APB on a woman matching your description. Like if anyone looks like you goes to a dentist or a hospital, like let them know. So at this point in the season, like your tooth is – one of your teeth has become oh. like really infected and it's causing you a lot of pain. So in the scene, as I said, which is like mostly silent, you get your yeah. husband, Philip, to pull the tooth out with a pair of pliers. Uh, you take a shot of whiskey and then you <laughs> lean back in your chair and he just sticks the pliers into your mouth and starts <laughs> – Pulling like it's it's super intense. It's super gripping. Acting's terrific. So, could you tell us about filming that scene? Totally. That um, scene. There's an incredible director, one of my most favorite, Thomas Schlamy. We call him Tommy Schlamy, um, of West Wing fame, and he's just such a master at story. And he kind of came in. And he, what he said to us was, this is, you know, a love, this is a sex scene. This is like a love sex scene. And I'm going to play it super tight on your faces. And it's all about trust and knowing every little wince or inch or movement and how much someone can take and how much they can't and like the push-pull of all of that. And that's why that scene is is great because of Tommy. Um well, and, and you guys, I mean, let's give you credit. Like, <laughs> but, you know, to get to have the open expanse and time to just play that silent like that for that long was such a gift. So just technically, like, first of all, did you take a shot of whiskey, an actual shot of whiskey before that scene or in that scene? <laughs> like, were those, were those real pliers he was sticking in your mouth and, like— <laughs> Like, what was he, was he grabbing on to something? Like, I, I didn't take a shot of whiskey, although I, I will be honest, there were quite a few um, random Tuesday mornings, like 7 a.m. at some, you know, like crazy Staten Island hotel room where you're like, hi, nice to meet you. Take off all your clothes, do a sex scene. I definitely <laughs> yeah. said to our sweet little PA, I need a beer in my hand in like 30 seconds or this is not going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> so, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, nice to meet you. Oh, great, great. So I, I'm just going to climb on top. Yeah, it's okay to put your hands there. Mm-hmm. I do remember the pliers. I remember them saying, we want them to look like not overly clean. Like we want, so they, <laughs> they did clean them. You know what I mean? But yeah. they got some kind of rough and tumble looking ones. And then he he must have been grabbing onto something in my mouth. Yeah, because it looks like he's straining. I mean, he might be yes. just a really great actor, but it looks like he's he is putting a really some great mus- actor. muscle into that. But yeah, and he was kind of like, 
he had he was like using my shoulder for leverage or something. I mean, it was so crazy. Well, let's take another short break here for a sec. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with actor Carrie Russell. Um, she has a new show coming out on Netflix on Thursday. It's called The Diplomat. We'll be back after a short break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at stearnsandfoster.com. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. So Carrie, uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your childhood and how you got your start in acting when you were cast on the all-new Mickey Mouse Club. And this was in the early 90s. Uh, I think you were on the show for three years. Is that right? Um, yes, that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Starting, it was a long time ago, yeah, but yes. Yeah, started when you were like 15. <laughs> and uh, the show's famous as the launching pad for a lot of talented young actors and musicians, including yourself, Ryan Gosling, Justin Timberlake, Christina Aguilera, and Britney Spears. So there was a big casting call in Colorado for this. It was was it a new show at the time? It was, had an, or I think, no, 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 it had been on. It had been on, uh, okay. Because I was... a. Yeah, it had been on okay. for a few years, yeah. And so you decided to try out. And at this point, it doesn't sound like you've done a lot of acting. Um, did you know what you were getting into? And like, was was one of your ambitions to be it on television at that point in your life? I had no idea what I was getting into. I did not grow up wanting to be an actor at all. And I, I did show up with hundreds of kids and all my little dance pals and... Um, yeah, you, you wait in line for, I'm not kidding, hours at some <laughs> stupid Denver convention center. And, you know, you get in finally and he says, um, hey, you know, what do you have prepared? Can you read this little script about a mermaid trying to recycle <laughs> or something <laughs> like that? And uh, sure, yeah, I'll read the words and then um, do a little dance because that's what I had prepared like one of my solos. And then um, he was like, okay, well, what song do you want to sing? And I was like, oh, no, I, I don't sing. And he said, little girl, do, do you see the line of, of kids waiting out there? Do you, do you want to sing a song? And I said, I don't. I, I don't sing. And so they called me back amazingly anyway. And they had me sing some like little song. I think they had me sing Happy Birthday. They want to make sure you can carry a tune, which I could probably barely could, I'm sure. Well, if people haven't seen the show, it, it was a variety show, and you you did some singing, you did some dancing, and then there's like a lot of set pieces. Like there was a soap opera called Emerald Cove, and then there was like there was a <laughs> spoof of soap operas called As the Mall Turns. And so uh, I wonder if you compare your upbringing to your kid's life, and if there was a casting for another Mickey Mouse Club, like would you let your kids audition like you had a good time, but it was certainly a unique way to be a teenager. Listen, I had the best of all worlds 
normally when a, a kid is acting, there's one child surrounded by adults. And you, not to mention the crew, which is huge. A, a crew to make an hour show, I mean, it's hundreds of people. So it's this kid, you know, working really long hours and needing to be professional and are surrounded by these adults. The Mickey Mouse Club, you know, I was one of 19 kids. The adults were invisible to me. I, I, I didn't even notice them. You know, it was just being in a small high school. I was just worried about like, you know, who I was going to make out with probably, <laughs> you know, um, who I had a crush on. So it was a sweet kind of innocent version of acting. That being said, I just think putting any child in a professional setting like that is really tricky. And that and that's why so many people don't make it and have, you know, have complicated lives after. And as much as we did have fun, and we totally did, little kids, like, you're supposed to be able to mess up. You're supposed to, like, have a sick day or three or, you know... Um, I don't regret anything and I'm so grateful for my life, but I would never let my kids do it because kids are supposed to be kids if they can, you know, and if you want to do it, you can do it later. Uh, So Carrie, after your time at the new Mickey Mouse Club, you decided to move to Hollywood and try to make it as an actor. You were on a few shows that didn't quite succeed, like there was an Aaron Spelling show. You were (laughs) in a Bon Jovi video. Uh, (laughs) Amazing. I didn't quite follow the narrative of that video, but it seems like you were pretty bad news news in it. Um, (laughs) And then you tried out for the show Felicity, which was your your really big break. Um, And... Felicity is about a girl who graduates from high school in California. She's planning to go to Stanford and to pursue a medical degree. But she changes her plans because this boy, Ben Covington, who she's had a crush on but never really talked to, writes like a compelling note in her yearbook. And so she decides to bail on all her plans and follow him. Uh, to New York, and he's going to the University of New York, which I have to say, I always thought it was weird. Like they can name Stanford, Stanford, but it's you can't have NYU. Like that's kind of weird, know. but that's besides the point. Um, well, let's hear a scene from Felicity. This is from the first episode where uh, the very earnest and honest Felicity confronts her crush, Ben Covington, played by Scott Speedman, um, in a college stairway and reveals to him why she's in New York. Um, I just want to preface this by saying that uh, I don't want you to feel weird about anything I'm about to say at all. Okay. Uh, the thing is, I came to New York, um, mostly because of you. (laughs) Yeah, I had these uh, sort of, um, intense feelings for you back in high school, and, uh, yeah, even though I know that we never really talked before graduation, except that one time when I uh, was passing out flyers for the blood drive. Anyway, maybe the fact that we never did talk was why I had those feelings. Because now, of course, I realize now that it was a crazy thing to do to follow someone I don't know 3,000 miles. And I sort of panicked about it, but I just wanted you to know that I'm past that and I'm, I'm totally okay with it now. I mean it, you know, because it's not really about you so much anymore. I'm here now, you know, uh, because I'm here. 
So, um, what are you thinking? I'm honestly, honestly, I'm just, I'm just, I'm flattered by Good. the whole thing. I'm flattered. I am. Good. That's that's really a perfect, perfect answer. Okay. Okay. So, uh, can we just be friends? Yeah. Sure. Great. Of course. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a really hard scene to listen to. <laughs> oh my god, oh, so it's I haven't heard that in a million years. That is hilarious. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but you know you're really good in that though. Like you're taking all these oh. awkward pauses, and it sounds really <laughs> natural. Um, but I have to say that she finds out I think in that episode or the next episode that he on his college essay he totally made up that his older brother died and that it was his dream all along to go to this school. And I have to say, Felicity should have totally left him at that point. Like that, <laughs> Completely. That, that's a bad sign. A ba- bad sign. But then I remember at the end of the pilot, they're standing on a rooftop and they're kind of like, oh, well, you know, this was our first few months and, you know, we're going to agree that to put the past behind us and um, she's maybe going to go back because it was crazy for her to come to New York. And he says, yeah, I just, I just, I, I can't wait to see what the city looks like when it snows. And it's just like, he just, such, it's such like a romantic way of looking at the world. And that time in your life when everything is new and in front of you. Oh and my so God, important. it's so, yeah. it's so sweet. <laughs> it's such a sweet little something. So when Felicity ended, uh, you decided to take a break from acting. Can you talk about that decision? So Felicity was four years and it was this big chunk of my 20s. You know, so grateful for it. Um, uh, saved a lot of money uh, uh, because, you know, we were working really long hours uh, you, on network shows. You know, you you have about two months a year that you're not on that show. It's, it takes because you're doing about twenty two to twenty four episodes, and um, so you know what, like sixteen hour days, seventeen, eighteen hour days sometimes. And I just felt like I had missed part of being a kid a little bit. So I took that money I had saved. And I rented an apartment in New York to be close to my girlfriends, Alana and Lindsay. And um, I acted like a kid. Like, I, I didn't want to act. I wanted to show up to birthday parties that I wasn't able ever to... Because, you know, when you're shooting a show, you're working till 10.30 at night. And then you wake up at 5 and you're on set the next day. So I missed out on, like, you know, stupid things. Birthday parties and going out dancing and getting drunk and walking home drunk in the snow. And I got to do all of those things um, those few years in New York. And, you know, just wander around listening to overly emotional teenage music or, you know, (laughs) reading books all day. And it really, um, that step back is the only way I'm still in this business because I think I had to, like, know I wanted to do it again before it consumed me. So I was wondering how much of that decision to take a break was in reaction to like just the intense identification some people had with your character, Felicity, like just the intensity 
of that. Like that must have been hard as a young woman. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of a nervous person anyway. And then the fame aspect just kind of made it worse because going out places, if people would always recognize you and then you, you always feel more watched. And I, I, um, it, it just kind of made it worse. I actually, <laughs> I got so nervous. I started like excessively sweating <laughs> under my arms. I actually went to a hypnotist to try to get like it to stop. Um, and I've learned to sort of, um, I've made peace with it now. And I, I go, oh, that's part of me. You know, I get nervous and it's okay. And even that acceptance kind of dissipates it a little bit sometimes. Well, Carrie Russell, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for coming to Fresh Air. Thank you so much. Carrie Russell spoke with Fresh Air's Sam Brigger. Her new show, The Diplomat, starts streaming Thursday on Netflix. After we take a short break, Maureen Corrigan will review a new nonfiction book about the IRA's attempt to assassinate British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research, on, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. In a new book called There Will Be Fire, Irish journalist Rory Carroll investigates the IRA plot to assassinate Margaret Thatcher, a plot that almost succeeded and thus almost changed the course of history. Our book critic Maureen Corrigan has a review. What? If. That's the classic alternate history question that drives There Will Be Fire, an engrossing work of nonfiction by journalist Rory Carroll, who's the Ireland correspondent for The Guardian newspaper. What if, Carroll asks, Thatcher's movements had been different during two crucial minutes in the small hours of October 12, 1984? What if she had lingered in the bathroom of her suite, which was several floors directly under a bomb the IRA had planted in the Grand Hotel in Brighton, England? 
What if that bomb, which did indeed explode and kill and grievously wound dozens of people, had claimed Thatcher among its fatalities? Clearly, the publication of There Will Be Fire has been timed to coincide with the 25th anniversary this month of the Good Friday Agreement, which brought peace, however uneasy, to Northern Ireland. Carroll says that if Thatcher had been killed by the IRA, that peace accord might very well not have happened. If comparisons to a political thriller like Frederick Forsyth's The Day of the Jackal are inevitable, so too is a comparison to Patrick Radden Keefe's spectacular 2019 book, Say Nothing, about the IRA abduction and disappearance of a mother of 10 in 1972. Both writers focus on discrete acts of violence as an entryway into a more expansive account of The Troubles, Northern Ireland's bloody struggle for self-determination. Keefe is a flat-out master storyteller. His book's title, Say Nothing, is from a poem by Seamus Heaney, and Keefe's own investigative writing has a rare poetical resonance to it. Carol's writing style is more methodical, diligently layering detail upon detail, much in the manner of one of the Scotland Yard investigators he profiles here, a fingerprint expert named David Tad. In the era before DNA testing, Tad and his team routinely sifted through bomb blasts and other crime scenes for up to 15 hours at a time trying, as Carol says, to match a smudge of a thumb to a name in Scotland Yard's vast archive of terrorist suspect files. Tad and his team pretty much did just that, cracking the identity of Thatcher's would-be assassin, all without the aid of computers. The centerpiece tale here of Thatcher's near assassination needs little embellishment to be riveting. In the wake of its successful assassination of Lord Mountbatten in 1979 and subsequent bombings, like that of Harrods Department Store in 1983, which brought the war to England, the IRA resolved to assassinate the sitting Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, in their eyes the most reviled British leader since Cromwell. The occasion would be the Conservative Party Congress, scheduled for October 1984 at the seaside resort of Brighton, where Thatcher and her cabinet would be staying at the Grand Hotel, an imposing Victorian structure. Nearly a month earlier, Patrick McGee, an IRA bomb expert nicknamed the Chancer, in recognition of the risks he took, checked in and spent three days in room 629 building a bomb. He hid it in a detachable panel under the bathtub and set the timer to go off in 24 days, 6 hours, and 36 minutes. The explosion itself was just the spark, Carol writes. The real weapon would be the hotel itself, its bricks, stone, marble, and glass unloosened from 120 years of compact solidity and turned into a great sweeping avalanche. When the bomb went off, 
one of the hotel's rooftop chimneys, acting like a monstrous guillotine as it sliced its way through to the ground floor, veered sideways. That meant it shattered not Thatcher's bedroom, but her bathroom suite, which the night owl prime minister had left just two minutes earlier. The next morning, amidst the carnage, the Iron Lady gave her conference speech as planned. As Carol comments, even those in Britain who loathed her were awed. In his copious acknowledgments, Carroll cites interviews with retired police officers, soldiers, politicians, and former IRA members, including Patrick McGee, whom he says was guarded but gracious. McGee's capture, which is another breathless story here, resulted in a sentence of eight life terms. He served 14 years before he was released under conditions of the Good Friday Agreement, the very same agreement Thatcher's assassination might have imperiled. Carroll, in his understated manner, lets that irony of history speak for itself. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed There Will Be Fire by Rory Carroll. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder. Our guest will be best-selling author David Gran. His new nonfiction book investigates the crash of an 18th-century British warship. The survivors sailed thousands of miles to safety on a makeshift boat. They later faced charges of mutiny. Gran also wrote Killers of the Flower Moon and The Lost City of Z. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Henry Bodonato, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On the TED Radio Hour, researcher Sasha Lucioni says AI can help us find climate solutions. But just training the technology itself uses a ton of energy. Training ChatGPT, for instance, emits as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime. Tech's climate conundrum. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.